Hello and welcome to the Teaching Drama Podcast. I am one half of your hosting squad. My name is Kyle A. Thomas and I am joined by... Hello, I am Seth Wilson, the other half of your hosting squad. <laughs> We're a squad now. I've yeah. decided to just make us a squad. That's how... If there's only... Wait, how many people does it take to make up a squad? More oh, than yeah. two? What's a squad quorum? That's a good question. Oh, yeah. We got to look into that. I think yeah. two, though. I think two is good. Okay, we're, for, we're tentatively we are the squad. We'll see. Well, I'm not. We don't. I don't mean to to supplant the squad of of <laughs> of political of American political fame. But um, for the, how about the theater squad for now? That's what yeah, we'll be. That's good. <laughs> uh, Seth, how are you doing? I am looking forward to our talk today. I am doing very well. How about you? I'm doing well. Uh, summers. Oh man, I think we've we've made it over the hump of summer, and now we're staring down the barrel of the end of it. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, before you know it, it'll be back to school time, and everybody will be gearing up for the fall. Oh, I don't want to go back to school. <laughs> I'm not ready for it. <laughs> well, um, we have a lovely guest today. Uh, I will let you talk more about who that is shortly. But before we do, hit me with the. Trivia question this episode. I'm I'm terrified, truthfully. I <laughs> I, I don't even, I haven't been keeping a score, but I don't think I'm doing well. I don't I think you should be optimistic about this one. I think your chances are good. So okay. um, a lot of our conversation today is going to deal with uh dramaturgy and the practice of being a professional dramaturg. So uh in the spirit of that, my question for you is who uh, is frequently considered by theater historians to have been the first professional dramaturg? Oh, you, you gave me a softball one today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. That would be Lessing, L-E-S-S-I-N-G, even spelled it for you. Yes. Um, yeah, of, of German extraction and his, and his publication of Hamburg, Hamburgische Dramaturgy. Yes, yes. Founding, uh, according to many theater historians, kind of founding the practice of dramaturgy as a discrete and uh, and separate field from some of the other things that had kind of been entwined with. Uh, so yeah, excellent work, very good. One of the most uh, famous and important figures in uh, in pre twentieth century German theater history um, and European theater history more generally. So um, that makes an excellent jumping off point. Uh, today, our guest is Lauren Halverson, who is a DC based dramaturg, writer, and editor. She's held artistic and literary positions at the Alley Theater, City Theater Company, Wordbridge Playwrights Laboratory, the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, the Wilma Theater, and Studio Theater, where she was the Associate Literary Director for nine years. Lauren currently writes Nothing for the Group, a weekly newsletter about the American theater, to which you should subscribe if you don't already, and we'll have some more information on that a little later on in the show. So let's all welcome Lauren. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so... I want to start off with a really difficult, hard-hitting question. I want to jump right into it here. How do you pronounce the word dramaturg? <laughs> exactly how you do. Um, I pronounce it dramaturg. I, you know, like everything, like even the definition of what a dramaturg is, there are many different interpretations, but I think that there is a right one. <laughs> um, and I think it's dramaturg. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who spell it with the E and pronounce it dramaturge, but I think that's obnoxious and I think that says something immediately about your character. Um, and when I was in Canada, I've been to a couple of new play festivals in Canada, they pronounce it dramaturgy, which to me sounds like anti-nausea medication. Um, but um, but no, I go for the old 
old school dramaturg. <laughs> that's what that sounds like the way I, Seth and I are both from the South. And I feel like I've heard people say drama a few times yeah. in my life. And so it sounds like something I would hear in the American South. I did not expect that to be said in Canada. Me neither. <laughs> and, I, and I never said anything because I felt kind of self-conscious. I was already self-conscious about being like an American in general. Um, so I was like, I don't want to exacerbate any sort of pre-existing stereotypes. I will just let that lie. Well, I agree you're doing it the right way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that uh, the pronunciation drama is usually uh, what my grandmother says when referring to other women at her church. So it's <laughs> interesting to hear that from the Canadians as well. Uh, all right. Well, great. Well, that's, I feel like that issue is settled and uh, we are, it is never going to be for discussed all time. further. Settled yes. for all time. It is dramaturg. So we're done with that one. Excellent. Um, so uh, yeah, I'd like it. Um, you know, a lot of our uh, listeners are students and, uh, and teachers of high school students. Um, so uh, I'd like to first just kind of get a bit of an overview of um, what dramaturgy is uh, and, and how one practices it um, in a professional setting? Sure. Um, well, for me, it, it's always like I was a dramaturg primarily within an institution. And I talked about my work in a lot of different ways, um, depending on if I was in a rehearsal room or if I'm just in the organization at large. So as a production dramaturg, when I'm working in a rehearsal room, the way that I always describe the work that I do is that I'm like a collaborative editor and I'm an early audience member for a play. And, you know, like every single creative process is going to be really different. And so I always try to be really responsive to the rhythms and needs of each artistic team and try to not to go into any sort of collaboration with a fixed idea on what I think it's going to look like, especially because when you're a dramaturg within an institution, you're working with a lot of different people. Sometimes you're working with an in-house director or a playwright that you've worked with many times before. Sometimes you're working with entirely all new people who have never worked with before. So I think it's important to like keep an open mind, but you know, the general sort of way that I approach my work, depending on whoever I'm working with, is that, you know, we all together like have a collective vision for what we think the production sh should be. And I see it as my responsibility to really know what the artistic goals are. So as the team is building the world of the play, I can reflect back to them what I'm seeing and how it either adheres or it deviates to what like our collective understanding of the project is. Um, so that's sort of like what my work within a rehearsal room is. Um, and then, you know, within an institution, <laughs> it's all over the place <laughs> um, because, you know, dramaturg just becomes like a catch-all, you know, term for anything involving words. I I've, I've found <laughs> in my work in an institution, but um, I would say that like overall the guiding principle of institutional dramaturgy is that I always saw it as my job to like help shape the overall messaging of the play and the narrative of a, of a production and making sure that everybody on staff could be really enthusiastic ambassadors for the work so that everybody knew why are we doing this play? What is it about? Why specifically are we doing it at this institution? What are the things that you need to know about it? Um, and I saw that as my work also in how I would communicate that information with audiences. I worked really closely um, when I was at Studio Theater with the marketing and development teams to make sure that you know, we all knew what the story of the play was and the story of the production was, and then helping everybody articulate it for their specific constituents. Um, so I think like overall, like depending on whether I'm in the office or in a rehearsal room or, you know, freelancing, like I really think that like the core tenets of my work are like 
active listening, advocacy, and service, because I think that dramaturgs, I always say that dramaturgs have a pathological desire to be useful, but I really do think that's a driving question that I always have, no matter the process, no matter the collaboration is like, how can I be useful in this context? So to kind of nail down a, a few specifics here, uh, because like, as you mentioned, yeah, dramaturgs kind of fill the roles as needed, but I, I'm curious in uh, the difference between working on a, a, a show that's in development and a brand new production versus a show that's, that's already kind of maybe it's been published has had a life of its own for some time and is being reinvigorated in some way by, by a company. Um, how, how does the, the job of a dramaturg change between those two particular uh, settings? Well, I think it's a lot more fun when you have the playwright in the room, <laughs> um, because instead of people looking to me to ask questions, it's just like, well, let's just ask them. They're right here. It makes my job a lot easier, um, but it also just makes it more fun. You know, I think that whenever you're working on a new play, it's just like the combination of personalities is different because it's not just you and the director, it's you, the director and the playwright. And, you know, you're going to function as a triangle, but you're also going to have individual relationships with each of those people. And I would say that even more so for me working with playwrights is like, I really, it's so important to get a sense of how they work um, and what they need and what resources they need in order to write. Um, and so I just really try to be a resource for that. And sometimes, you know, with some playwrights, it's like they want me to look at every single draft. Others don't, um, you, you know, it just sort of like depends on the person. It depends on my relationship with them. Um, it depends on a lot. And it also depends on what the development process is. If we've had a chance to do a reading, if there have been workshops, if we're just diving into the production and we haven't had any sort of like pre, you know, development work together and we're all just like in a room. So I would say that like, it depends on whatever the situation is. But again, I just always try to approach it of like, what do you need and how can I help you? <laughs> like, how can I help create an environment in which you feel that like you can take risks and you can make discoveries um, and that you also feel safe as an artist and how can I help facilitate like the best possible process for you and also give you agency as much as possible. And I think when I was in an institution that often meant like being a conduit to some of the more like idiosyncratic processes of an institution and also just communicating back to the artistic staff about the process and where it was going and like balancing the institutional desires for what a production wanted to be with what the individual artistic team's priorities were and making sure that I was always toggling between the rehearsal room and, you know, the institution and being a resource to both people or to both sides. I love that. I, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot uh, with this right. one. Um, <laughs> how do you deal with, I mean, hopefully you've never had this situation, but maybe you have. How do you deal with a difficult playwright or a difficult, in, uh, you know, maybe a difficult institution or a difficult director? Um, yeah. I mean, hope, maybe you've had that experience. Please don't name any names. But uh, <laughs> yeah, like, well, how do you navigate the, the challenges that can come with maybe some big personalities in the room? Yeah, I mean, you know, that is like, I've, I've always said that like, and I think that this is something that I don't think when people think about dramaturgy, they really emphasize this, is that it really is only like 10% actual smarts. And the rest of it is like 90% intuition and personality management. Um, and it's, and like, it really is like, I don't know, I feel like people have like an image of dramaturgs as being like, bookish academics, but like, you really have to have like, an understanding of the of a specific emotional terrain 
of, of a room because it's going to be different every single time. And it just requires like a level of like, not just like spatial awareness, but like emotional awareness. Like you have to understand the temperature of a room if A, you want to be useful. And if you also just want to have like as, you know, healthy a process as possible. Um, yeah, I mean, I've definitely worked with difficult playwrights. I've worked with difficult directors. I think, you know, that's part of the deal. <laughs> um, you know, you, you work on all ends of the spectrum. And I think that in some cases, it's sometimes you just have to manage your expectations um, about like what's going to be possible. Like, especially when you're working on a new work, you know, just because you put up, just because you premiere a play, it doesn't mean that like the work on that play is done. And I think that's often a failure of like the new play development model is like everybody is so obsessed with world premieres, but you learn so much about a play in its second or third production. Um, one of the last plays that I worked on when I was at Studio Theater was a play by Sarah Burgess called Kings. And she, it was her third, we were her third production of the play and she was able to come and be in the room and continue to do work on it and learn from it. And that was really valuable for me as a new play, as a new play dramaturg um, was to work with somebody on like a later iteration after everything that they've learned in their, in the production process at other places and with other audiences and specifically for Kings in other geographic regions. But um, I digress. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I mean, again, like I think I said earlier, it really is about like managing your expectations about what's possible. And there were often times that like also when I was in an institution and somebody was being difficult, it's about being able to communicate to other people about, about what's going on. Sometimes you also have to understand the limits of what you can control and what you can do. Um, and you just have to kick it up to somebody else. And I think that so much of working within an institution is like leaning on your colleagues to help you when necessary. And to also just make sure that everybody knows all of the information and is that they need. Um, so that like, if you don't have the power to do something, then knowing the ways to get things done. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of like a trial and error process. I don't think that there, I wish that there was one tried and true way to you know, deal with difficult people, but there isn't. I think that's great advice. I, I honestly yeah. set your expectations and then know what that uh, those avenues of recourse happen to be with institutions and with, with different companies. So that's great. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. So speaking of like things that there aren't necessarily um, clearly delineated, defi defined instructions for, um, you know, I think a lot of people when they go <clears throat> either to enter the workforce or to, to go to school, you know, um, and you want to do theater, um, you have a lot of people who want to be actors, a few people who want to be directors or designers or something like that. Um, I'm curious about your path into dramaturgy and what you might suggest other people um, who might be interested in this as a, a professional career and look into. Yeah. Um, so like a lot of people, I didn't hear the word dramaturg until I was in college. Um, I went, I actually, I didn't study theater. I was in, I went to Bryn Mawr College, which is a liberal arts college outside of Philadelphia. And I studied English and I studied art history and I studied creative writing and film. And I was really just taking courses in things that were interesting to me because I just wanted to write papers about vertigo. Um, but um, actually all of that schooling that I did ended up really influencing my work as a dramaturg because it taught me not just to think in terms of text, but also to as like a visual thinker, um, which is equally important. Um, and so, I mean, I didn't really know what it was. And I was also struggling to figure out at the time, like I had been a very serious actor when I was in high school, but then I got to college and I was like, I don't really want to do that anymore. 
I don't really have the disposition for stage management. I don't want to be a director, but like, where exactly do I fit in? I knew that I, I couldn't really sort of find where I belonged. Um, and Bryn Mawr was doing a production of Three Sisters and they had, they were advertising for a dramaturg. And I went in and I talked to the professor and I was like, what is this? I've never heard this. And she explained it to me. And she said, well, you know, we'd want you to do some research, production research for us and compile the program and come in and give notes on like the story and the emotional arcs. And like at the time, I didn't really realize that it was a job. I just thought, oh, here are all of these disparate tasks that you need somebody to do. And you're just calling a dramaturgy. <laughs> but I did it and I found that it really appealed to my sensibilities and my interests. And I, and I started to research more about it. Um, and I ended up getting a literary internship at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, um, where that was when I really completely fell in love with new play development and the role of the dramaturg. And the nice thing about the O'Neill is that you get to meet so many people over the summer because there's like 200 visiting artists and professionals coming through. So I also got to talk to a lot of people and to get a sense of like different career paths. Um, and I also ended up doing another internship when I got back to school at the Wilma Theater in Philadelphia. So I also got a sense of like, the rhythms of a regional theater, which is very different from, from a new play, from a summer new play festival. Um, and then, you know, after I graduated, I had the decision of like, do I want to go to grad school or not? And for me, I mean, I, I think that I would have loved it. I've never been particularly drawn to academia, even though I do like learning, but I didn't want to take on the debt. And that was really the the real decision maker for me is that I didn't want to accue, accrue any sort of debt. So I just ended up getting jobs. I worked, you know, I graduated into the recession, <laughs> um, which was the time when, you know, all of the entry level literary positions basically went away. Um, so I got a job. I worked at the city theater company in Pittsburgh. I was a company manager and assistant to the artistic director. I was there for a year. And then after that, I went to the Alley Theater in Houston, where I was a literary associate. Um, a position that, you know, I mean, I often say that like, instead of getting my MFA, I spent three years at the alley <laughs> and that was sort of my crash course in how to be a dramaturg. Um, but I also think that there's something really difficult about learning how to do something because I had never been a production dramaturg before I had been there. And I think that there's something really difficult about learning in a professional environment instead of in the cozy womb of academia when you are with peers who are also learning and it's more of an educational experience. And I was really just kind of thrown in the deep end. But the nice thing was that I got to observe so many fantastic directors and also the Alley Theater has a resident acting company so I could build meaningful relationships with those actors over time. Um, and so I tried to do my best and also, I mean, now the alleys issues are like very out in the open, but it was a very difficult environment for a young woman to be working in um, at that at that time. Um, and so I was there for three years and after that I was pretty much ready to leave. And then that's when I went to studio theater. Um, so that's sort of like the roundabout way to how I, how I became a dramaturg. And like, it's been interesting. I've been talking to a lot of colleges lately about like my career path. Um, and I don't know that I would necessarily recommend it. And I also can't really recommend it because most of the jobs and positions that I had don't exist anymore. Um, so when I'm talking to students about like pursuing a career in dramaturgy, I don't really know what to tell them because, you know, I was laid off during COVID and so were many of my peers, um, you know, an entire mid-level of dramaturgs in this country were like completely eradicated. And those entry-level lit positions don't exist anymore. And so for the most part, now there are low paying apprenticeships and unpaid internships. And then there are senior level 
dramaturg positions. And like, that's the state of institutional dramaturgy right now. Um, and so I really, I, I, I don't know how to advise people right now because I don't know what the landscape of the, of the profession is gonna look like, especially as reopening starts and people start restaffing and restructuring you know, I don't know exactly what the future what the future holds for somebody who's interested in a full time staff position like that. And I don't necessarily know that I would recommend the path that I took either because I think it hinged on working for free <laughs> a lot, taking really low paid, low paying, exploitative jobs in really hostile work environments um, until I got to the mid career level. Um, so it's it's a complicated <laughs> it's a complicated path. Um, and yeah. <laughs> well, how many, how many, just to get an idea, how many years do you feel like you've spent to, you know, just using the terminology of like early career versus mid career versus late career. And I know that's different for everybody and every profession within this larger theater industry, but you know, how long do you feel like it took you to go from what you considered early career to mid career? Yeah, I would say that I felt early career for maybe like the first five years out of college. So it was probably like after my first year at Studio Theater, um, where I was the associate literary director for nine years that I really felt that I was like, okay, I'm past the early career point. I feel confident. I feel like I know what I'm doing. Um, I've also like acquired a certain level of agency. Um, so that's sort of where I felt. I was in my late twenties by that point. Yeah, that, I, the reason I asked that is because you know we're really concerned on the podcast here about kind of this trajectory of theater education and and all the you know as far back as say uh, middle school, high school kind of um, level all the way up through professional careers that last a lifetime and kind of getting a sense for our audience to understand you know, what this, because we've talked a lot about, you know, exploitative contexts and, mm -hmm. and people doing stuff for free and unpaid internships and all that kind of thing. And so it's good to kind of be able to understand a bit of a, a number with those things. How long does it, you know, if you're going to spend a year, maybe trying to scrounge around and, and doing some unpaid stuff, maybe that's worth it. But if it's five, six, seven, 10 years, then, yeah. then you're really, you, you've got to make some really key decisions early on. And that's kind of the part of what we're trying to do with this, with this mm -hmm. podcast and with this episode is let people know what that's like. No, completely. And I'm also like very open about the fact that I couldn't have had the career that I had and made the decisions that I had if I didn't ha I have no undergraduate student loan debt. And so that enabled me, you know, I could take a job that was $20,000 a year, <laughs> which was my first salary when I was out. And I didn't crack $40,000 until I was about six or seven years in my career. Um, and that was okay because I did not have a massive student loan payment. Um, so, and I also had a certain geographic flexibility that, you know, that meant like, yeah, I'll move to Pittsburgh. Yeah, I'll move to Houston, you know, some city I've never been to. I'll completely yeah. up my life every few years. Um, so there are like, which not everybody I know was was willing to do because either they have children or they have family obligations or they don't want to. Um, so it, you know, there were certain like sacrifices that I could make because of my specific privileges and my specific situation. Yeah. I also try to be as transparent as possible about. No, that's great. Thank you. And, and, you know, Seth and I both have PhDs, but you may be the smartest person on this episode right now, to be honest with you. <laughs> Doubtful. <laughs> well, I, feel I don't like, know. 
There were many what? times when I was at the alley when I was like, if I went to Yale, I'd know what I'm now. Oh, so, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, well, so one thing that you, you've touched on a little bit and that I'm kind of interested in uh, in picking up as a thread a little bit more here is um, I feel like one of the really difficult things about theater as an industry is that the way that most people start in it, I mean, some people go to, um, you know, really... Um, really well-funded performing arts high schools or, or what have you, but most people start in theater as a, an extracurricular activity and it's a passion project for them. It's something they like doing, you know, it's, it's not algebra, it's not um, history, you know, not, not, although if you love those things, great, but you know, it's something that you, you do because you care about it and you really love doing it. And that passion very much, once you enter the, the theater industry gets weaponized against you. That, that is, um, that the fact that you, you know, like you, you mentioned how low paying a lot of these jobs are. And if you look at art search or playbill or, you know, any job aggregator site for a theater, um, if they list a salary, it's usually well below what you could get for like a, a comparable position in another field, uh, whether entry mid or, or senior level. Um, so I'm curious, uh, your newsletter, um, and we'll, uh, we'll talk about it a little bit more um, for uh, folks at the end. Um, but your newsletter, Nothing for the Group, really talks a lot about theater as a labor marketplace, as a mm -hmm. place where people are exchanging their work for money. Um, and I'm, so I'm curious, like, what your experience has been um, as someone who is in this field, you know, trying to make a living at it. Um, and, and what, um, you know, for somebody who is, what advice you might have for someone who is ho hoping to pursue theater as a, as a career? Yeah, I mean, I think that you have to, like anything else, you have to approach it with a healthy dose of pragmatism. Um, and I also think, and something that I wish that was emphasized, particularly on the on the university level, was like a real sense of the financial realities of working in this industry. So like not just from a personal finance standpoint, but also knowing about budgeting, knowing about contracting, knowing how to negotiate salaries, um, knowing how to do your taxes. <laughs> um, but um, so even if, you know, there, there are so many good campaigns and so many organizations and so many individuals who are pushing for more equitable hiring practices and also like salary transparency from organizations. But I do also think that it falls on individuals to also like educate themselves, <laughs> um, again, about the financial realities of what it means to work in any theater, nonprofit, commercial, community, et cetera. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been a little difficult and it's been interesting to see how my own views on this have changed as I have gotten older. Um, you know, I'm almost, I turned 36 at the end of this week. And so my priorities have also changed since I made the decision when I was 19 <laughs> to be a dramaturg. Um, you know, I've allowed myself the uncomfortable luxury of changing my mind <laughs> about what I want and what my priorities are, which are very different from now than from when I was initially out of college. Because I think that one of the things that I've really been able to witness firsthand is that like, this is an industry that like runs on exploiting the enthusiasm and the work ethic of young and marginalized people. And it is not built for sustainability or for any sort of upward mobility. I think that it's incredibly inhospitable to people who wanna be parents, to caregivers, um, you know, it's very easy to be a single person working in theater. It is impossibly difficult to do it when you have a family. 
And I've watched that and I've watched like that play out with other colleagues, with my boss. Um, and I think that it, it, it's just like on an institutional level, like if you really want to have a diverse workforce, you really need to think about what you're offering people in order to give them like a necessarily a necessary like work-life balance, but also just like basic needs um, in terms of like what the benefits are and the flexibility and you know, what, what you're offering people because theaters demand a loyalty and commitment and of like ex on an extreme level that they're not necessarily willing to return in a crisis. Um, so I think that it's just also like institutions just need to prioritize the needs of people. Um, and I don't think that that has been necessarily the case. I mean, I will say that, you know, now I have a non-industry job and it's been amazing what being paid a living wage and having a stable work schedule and having a clear work-life balance has done for like my physical and mental health. Um, and it was just, and I was, I've been like completely floored, <laughs> like, like by the benefits of a nine to five, because I also feel like something that theater does is it conditions you that, you know, oh, well, you're working for your art and you have to pay dues and you have to, you know, that's why it's like, nobody's making money. And it's like, well, who decided that? You know, there's plenty of people in theater who are making money. They're, they just like work in executive leadership roles. Um, so I think that something that I also hope that like is, you know, and I feel like people have been talking about this is also the like level of financial transparency from institutions across the board. Um, something that I've also been saying, like when I've, I, you know, I do a lot of seminars with students and like apprentices about like cover letters and resumes and something that people always ask is about salary requirements and why don't organizations post their salary ranges? And I was like, if an organization doesn't post their salary range, I think that there are really two reasons for that. One, they don't want people on their staff knowing what everybody else makes. And two, it's too low that it's so low that, that they're embarrassed. Like those are the only reasons not to post a salary range. Um, so I think that also like trying to educate people <laughs> about like about like how to talk about money. I feel like we're all not conditioned to like we're conditioned to devalue ourselves essentially and particularly young people. Um, and you know, I'm not of the mindset that like just because I worked for free and just because I worked in conditions that were in that were inequitable that like I think that's I think that you know a 22 year old now should have to do the same thing. Like that doesn't solve anything that just like perpetuates a cycle <laughs> of inequity. So you know I, I want to make it better for the next generation of theater workers. Um, and I feel that like now that I've like achieved a certain like, now that I have like a certain platform and now that I've like amassed a certain level of experience, it really is my responsibility to advocate for that. Yeah, that's really great. And I think that one thing that is really interesting to me is like whenever, like when I had friends who were like doing the internship circuit or something, you know, they would always be like, oh, I did a show with, you know, like ex-famous person's kids and uh -huh. it's always like well, well gee I you know as a young person I was like oh that's amazing and like oh well gee I wonder why they're doing theater because they have the family support to be you know like the 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 president's daughter can host uh, a tv show in the morning now because she had the family support to do so and I think that that's a really great thing to call out and I I, I really appreciate also you know the pushing back against the culture of dues paying that just because I had to take, you know, I mean, I, um, 
I won some money on a game show and I took an internship with a, uh, a, a very well-known literary uh, department at a major theater. And um, one of the people in the leadership was like, oh, well, I really, somebody else who did this won money on Italian who wants to be a millionaire. And I don't know how I feel about the fact that people have to win money on game shows to do these internships. And I was like, mm-hmm. like steam came out of my ears. It's like, well, who, you know, like, what do you think is going on when you pay $500 for six months of work? Yeah. Um, so I think that's a really great thing to point out. Um, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about Nothing for the Group, um, like where uh, kind of what the genesis of the newsletter was. And, and um, I think one of the things that's really great about it is you write very, very directly about things that people tend to step around in theater. You know, there's a lot of like um, open secrets, I feel like, of uh, a sort of whisper network of this theater ha- uh, has you know, abusive practices. This theater's artistic director has racist, uh, a history of racist abuse, things like that, um, that you've really been able to write about really directly. So I'm curious, I'd like to hear more, uh, a little bit more about the genesis of the project and kind of what you see, um, what you hope for its future. Sure. Um, So I started the newsletter almost exactly a year ago. um, And there were some personal reasons, but some also like field-wide interests (laughs) for the project. But um, personally, I had just been laid off from my job And I was already mourning the parts of it that I really loved, including curating this weekly email of reviews and season announcements and stories about artists and projects that we were tracking. And, you know, like every day for the last 15 years, I get up and I read Playbill and American Theater and the New York Times and I scan all the headlines and like I'm wired to do that. (laughs) And I'm not just going to stop doing that now that I don't have a job. So there was a part of me that was like, maybe this could be useful to somebody else. Like just because my brain works this way and I sort of like absorb everything and know what's going on. Like it was my job to sort of know what was going on like nationally and internationally. But I was like, I feel like not everybody's brain works this way. Um, And I also knew that at the time that my job search was going to take me outside of theater just because things were so dismal (laughs) last year. Um, But I wanted to stay tethered to it in some way. And I also wanted a venue for writing in my own voice. Um, Because, you know, I had been writing almost exclusively in institutional voice for a decade. And I didn't know what it sounded like to write, to write as Lauren Halverson. I knew what it sounded like to write as Lauren Halverson, Associate Director of Studio Theater or in the voice of Studio Theater. Um, So I really wanted to like give myself a project to like make sure that my skills didn't atrophy, but also to like detangle myself from that perspective. But, um, you know, like in terms of like field-wide concerns, I also, you know, like I said previously, like I always try to approach my work from a service-oriented perspective. And like, I think that especially when it comes to like disseminating and contextualizing information to different audiences, I thought that the newsletter could fill the need to also like amplify artists and their work. Um, And at the time too, there was a lot going on in the industry you know, there were institutions that were navigating programming shifts and nobody quite knew when we were opening and every, like the goalposts for for theaters reopening kept moving. Um, You know, there there were these massive furloughs and layoffs and there were also these calls for anti-racist action following the George Floyd protests. And I was watching theaters just completely fumble the messaging (laughs) around all of these things. And, you know, press outlets weren't really calling it out because, 
you know, the state of the critical arts press in this country is already pretty bleak. So most people aren't really doing commentary. They're just sort of regurgitating press releases. And I really wanted a venue to like discuss that and to like reframe some of these narratives um, that I felt that organizations were putting out because I'm just always interested. I'm very interested in institutional messaging and how theaters talk about themselves. Um, so, so that's sort of like where I started from. And, you know, I, at first, I didn't really consider the newsletter like part of my dramaturgical practice, but um, I think that it really has become over time because I try to be incredibly mindful about the type of work that I highlight in feature. You know, I don't want it to just be New York centric or just like Lort theaters, um, but I also like try to like thoughtfully curate the things that I find interesting and relevant and vital to the field. Like it's not a comprehensive listing service, service at all. And I try to be particularly mindful about how I recap events you know, I don't want my recaps to substitute reading a full text or reading an article, particularly when it's by somebody of a marginalized identity. So what I try to do is it then becomes a game to be like, okay, well, how can I like pique a reader's interest enough to get them to click this link? So it, so it's also like a bit of like thinking about information, you know, and like, how do I like shape somebody's understanding of what's happening and how do I get them to pay attention to the things that I want them to pay attention to? Um, so yeah, so right now, I mean, for year two, um, I'm really focused on building a wider readership um, and diversifying the content between these like weekly roundups that I do. Um, I just launched paid subscriptions that will support me doing some more like long form experimental writing. Um, I'm interested in doing some like more like bigger data projects and more like macro level thinking about like season planning. Um, so I don't know, but I think that I've been really thrilled by like the response that I've gotten. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that I miss most about being a dramaturg is being a confidant for people and listening. And I get so many emails from people who just want to talk to me mostly about like injustices that they've suffered at the hands of this industry. And even though I can't necessarily do anything for them, I really, you know, the camaraderie has meant so much to me, especially when I felt particularly adrift from the industry after losing my job. And not really knowing what was happening. Um, the community that has like sprung up <laughs> in the wake of the newsletter has just been like incredibly meaningful to me. And also the financial support, you know, it, you know, it kept me in my apartment <laughs> until I got a full-time job. It paid for my Cobra, which was exorbitant. Um, it really has like meant the world to me. And I also feel that it's also helped me articulate not just my own voice, but also like my own vision for what I want the American theater to be, because I don't feel like I'm working inside of an institution. There's something about being an independent writer that allows me to be really honest and really direct in a way that you can't when you're working for an institution, because you are an ambassador of that institution. And I can't be <laughs> as frank <laughs> as, you know, a dramaturg within an institution as I can be by just like, you know, just some gal writing, <laughs> writing what she thinks about things. And I think that I also feel a certain freedom because I don't think I'm going to go back to institutional theater. So, you know, I always say that like, I'm not trying to burn bridges and I'm trying to be salty, but like never mean. But I think that that also lends itself to the honesty um, because I feel like I'm like forging this new path for myself and a new definition for what it means to me to be a freelance dramaturg. Well, I think your experience it really kind of reflects a lot of what's going on in the industry more broadly. That we are looking at a point because of you know because of COVID, 
uh, we're looking at a, at a at an inflection point really in in this field, and and I think that that as as our generation, we're all roughly the same age, um, as the millennials kind of continue to age in and become a, pr a prominent part of American uh, cultural fabric, that we we don't place as much trust in institutions. We are currently, you know, a, a lot of folks, particularly in theater are looking at institutions and, and, and trying to find ways to address the systemic issues that um, tend to make up how these institutions run and their procedures and processes. So uh, I, I'm actually really curious about how our kind of post COVID theater is, is attacking those, the kind of institutionalization of, of, of the field and of the art more broadly. And, and what you see the dramaturg's role going forward, particularly as more and more digital platforms begin to emerge um, and, and different types of kind of aesthetic and artistic frames emerge that are less tied to a physical kind of brick and mortar institution and more about uh, honing and developing these communities across the nation and across the globe. So where does the dramaturg fit into all that? And, and what do you see kind of as the future for dramaturgy? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that dramaturgs as a whole are some of the most like agile creative thinkers <laughs> in an institution, but also as artists, because the sprawl of the job from institution to institution just requires like a certain level of like gung-ho flexibility and also like a real enthusiasm. Like dramaturgs really care about artists. They really care about the work. Um, and so I think that, you know, they really, you know, I, some people see them as gatekeepers, but I've always like seen the dramaturgs are the people who are like your quiet champions within the institution because nobody gets into dramaturgy for the glory, um, for the glory of recognition because, and if you are, I mean, go do something else, you know, because <laughs> you won't get it. It is like, it's a lot of invisible labor, unfortunately. Um, but I think that, you know, I, I mean, one of the things that I think has been really exciting about like, the expansion of digital theater has also been like this way to build new audiences and to also like get you thinking about like, well, who exactly do we serve outside? I'm just always so interested in, the, in this question of audience, um, particularly when it comes to regional theaters, because I've only ever worked in regional theaters. And often I have found that like theaters aren't so interested in programming to the community that they're in, <laughs> um, you know, which I think is the complete antithesis of the entire regional theater movement. But, um, but you know, it's true. It's a lot of like regurgitating whatever's on New York stages without actually thinking about the people that you live with. <laughs> and the people, is it the people in your direct neighborhood? Is it the people in your community? Is it, you know, nationwide? Is it worldwide? Um, and I think that the way that people, that theaters have adapted to that, I, I have been so curious about like, how they've managed to do work that feels like it fits its mission, but also just feels more expansive in terms of who it can reach. Um, and one of the things that I really like to like highlight in the newsletter is I find, you know, people who are just like, really just like taking the bounds of like, they're not just doing like, you know, love a Zoom reading, you know, <laughs> like it, it goes really well, you know, it, it can be like very effective, but um, people who are like really, playing with the form and playing with this idea of live performance. Um, so like, I don't know. And I think that dramaturgs can be an advocate for that. Like, it's like, it, again, it's like development and like 
curiosity, you know, which I feel every dramaturg has. Um, and I mean, if you're going to have like a very like robust, robust in-person season, but then you also want to keep producing digital work. And it's something that I'm going to be curious to see how many theaters continue to develop digital work, or if it was just something that they were doing as like a stopgap. Um, you know, you need a staff to do that. <laughs> you need a staff to manage that. But I just thought that it was like so curious that when the pandemic happened, all of a sudden there, it was like, there was no in-person theater. And so many theaters were like, well, our dramaturgs are expendable. Um, and I just thought that was like a fundamental misunderstanding of everything that a dramaturg does for an institution. Um, so I don't totally know. <laughs> and I don't know what the future holds. I've seen like some theaters post new jobs for literary managers and for like director of new work. Um, and I think that's like super exciting, but I know a lot of jobs aren't coming back. Um, my previous, my most recent one is not <laughs> for, for the upcoming season. Um, and I know a lot of others aren't. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think the dramaturgs are indispensable. I think that they're people you want in a room. I think that they're good for an institution. Um, I also think that the field is criminally underpaid <laughs> um, for both the expertise and the time and the sprawl of responsibilities that are foisted upon dramaturgs. So I think that's also a challenge. Like I had really hit a wall um, even before the pandemic. I was just like, oh, like any move that I make is just going to be lateral at this point, because even if I was to go lead a department somewhere else, I'd probably be making the same amount of money that I'm making now um, to work 60 <laughs> or 60 to 70 hours a week with less resources and picking up and moving to a community where I don't know anybody. And for me, I was just like, this isn't sustainable. Like this was fine when I was 25, but I'm 35, you know, I want an apartment with multiple rooms and I want to adopt a rescue pit bull and these goals should not be out of reach, <laughs> but, um, but they were, you know? And so, yeah, I don't know. I feel did you, like did you adopt the rescue pit bull? I have to ask. <laughs> not yet, but I'm like in the process of rearranging my life <laughs> to do so. It's really, <laughs> yeah. Like after I lost my job, I was like, okay, I have no career ambition anymore. Like my ambition just like eroded. Um, which I've spoken to a lot of other people. And I think that's also been the case. And it, for so long, it was like the engine for me. It was the reason that I did everything. It was the main fun factor in my life. And during the pandemic, I was like, you know what? I just want a dog. That's all I want. <laughs> like that, that's really, that is a dog would like make me happier than any piece of art. So, you know, that, that is like now my guiding star <laughs> to get my rescue pit bull one day. So Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, my fingers are crossed for you too. I hope you can. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like that. I I feel like you you did kind of hit on a uh, a really like common thing in the uh -huh. pandemic. So I feel like a lot of people have put so many parts of their life on hold for theater, and then when theater, um, I don't necessarily think like it all evaporated overnight. But when uh, when institutions made clear what they valued the most and it tended to not be um, always the artistic positions, I feel like it really was clarifying for a lot of people about like, I've given so much and this is what I can expect to get back is, is very, very little. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, like I didn't, it's always been interesting, like given the early career experiences that I had, which were I mean, to be perfectly frank, horrible <laughs> and demoralizing. And you really, and I learned, unfortunately, firsthand that like institutions don't care about people, people care about people. Um, 
you know, I really was working in this field with no delusions. And even though that I was in a situation at Studio Theater where I had a great boss, um, I had a really good relationship with my artistic director. I liked the work that we did. I felt valued. I knew that that didn't exempt me, that like someday it could also come for me. And like, and that is like not a great headspace to, to be in, even though it's like a pretty pragmatic headspace to be in. And it like, you know, I think like being a catastrophe minded person has actually like served me pretty well <laughs> over the last year, even though it can sometimes be exhausting. Um, you know, it's, it's like you're never allowed a sense of security, um, even when you feel content. And that is just one of the realities of working, even, even though like, you know, I was very lucky to be steadily employed for 13 years, but it's still, you know, you're just, you're always kind of, it, nothing feels stable. Yeah, I think that's a, a good point. And I think that the thing that, I mean, people tend to like working in the theater because you like working with people. And yet anytime that there is conflict between people and institutions, it seems like the institutions, um, tend to not um, take care of the people like you might hope they would. Um, and especially when, you know, when you really valorize, like when you see a show at a theater and you're like, that really changed my perspective on the world. And then from the other side, you know, it can be very disappointing to feel like the institution doesn't have the people's best interests at heart. Um, so like what, kind of with that in mind, I guess like looking broadly at the American theater as a workplace post COVID, um, you know, what would you, what kinds of things might you like to see change? Um, I mean, obviously this is a really huge question and uh, we, uh, I, the short answer I guess is everything, but um, <laughs> you know, like some of the specific things that you've pointed out um, in Nothing for the Group, I feel like um, are, are really um, like the way that theater deals with race and um, anybody who is not like a white cisgendered heterosexual hmm. male um, I mean, obviously those are places that need to change, but where, are there things that make you hopeful, I guess, is my question. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think a lot of institutions have been taking baby steps towards doing this during the pandemic. And I also understand that as an institution, it's, you know, it's very hard to be trying to undergo radical change when you are also hemorrhaging money and stuff, <laughs> um, when you don't have the resources, when you're like trying to keep up the resources to keep your doors open. So I, I know that it's been difficult. So I'm actually curious to see once theaters stabilize, like how many people like continue to hold themselves accountable, not just like, you know, when we see white American theater like features them, um, but like as an ongoing practice, because if you truly wanna be anti-racist, I mean, it's lifelong work. There's not a moment where it's like, check, I'm done. You know, um, it's just ongoing. So, I mean, you know, in terms of like specific things that I'd like to see, I think that's something that has become like more of a conversation during the pandemic is the influence of boards. And I think that there is radical reform <laughs> that needs to happen with nonprofit boards, specifically about like thoughtful recruitment and inclusive membership. I think there need to be term limits. I think that there needs to be mandatory anti-racist and cultural competency training. Um, and I also think that there need to be more artists on boards. And I'm not just talking about like on an artist council, I'm talking full-fledged board members. And part of that is going to be deprioritizing recruiting board members who you know have deep pockets and start thinking about like, what do you value in terms of lived experience and relationship building in your board members? Um, and creating more avenues for interaction between staff 
you know, I think that so many of these, we've, we've had so many stories over the past year of like toxic workplaces. And part of it is that the board had no idea what was going on <laughs> because the art, because the leadership, the toxic leadership was like preventing staff from communicating that to the people that hold their futures and are responsible for their futures. So I think that the whole like nature of boards just needs to be rethought. Um, I also think like there should be term limits for leadership. I don't think people should be leading organizations for more than a decade, um, you know, and also like better development opportunities and mentorship opportunities for, you know, marginalized theater workers and not like in like a paternalistic way, but like actually in a really thoughtful and also not in an apprenticeship way where it's like, come and we'll pay you nothing, you know, like it's like, like really robust mentorship opportunities. Um, hiring practices, like in general, I mean, I think that there's been a real push for clear salary ranges is clear salary listings. But I also think that there's a lot of elitist language in job descriptions, particularly when we talk about educational requirements, specifically like requiring MFAs or requiring certain years of experience for entry level jobs. Um, you know, that all needs to go away. And I also think that, you know, theaters, like nobody is going to have a linear, linear career trajectory after this pandemic. So I also think that like hiring managers or people making hiring decisions really need to like open their minds about like people who have like experience that's all over. And, you know, I mean, when I was always looking for literary interns, like for me, it's like, I was always like interested. It's like, yeah, there were people who had like some dramaturgy experience, but I was like, oh, you have a peace and conflict studies minor. Let's talk about that because that's probably more useful for dramaturgy than like studying English literature, if I'm being perfectly honest. Um, yeah. And then, I mean, what else, you know, I also think that budgets are moral documents and I think greater financial transparency at the institutional level and like really learning where organizations spend their money um, and how it's allocated and being crystal clear about that. Ars Nova recently like is doing that radical transparency and like releasing their budget document and not just like, you know, putting your audited numbers in the annual report, which everybody sort of like fudges every year to make it look like they're in the black anyway, but like really showing like, here's how we're spending our money. Um, and, you know, in terms of representation in programming and personnel, like, you know, we see white, I mean, all of this stuff is stuff that we see white American theater um, put in their demands. Like they basically gave institutions a blueprint to do the work. So there's like no excuse for them not to do it. But I think that one of the easiest calls that they made is that there just needs to be 50% BIPOC representation in your programming and in your personnel. And like on all levels, not just in your writers, but like in your front of house staff, from your entry level and junior positions to your senior leadership. Um, and also I think how, you know, the whole concept of community engagement at institutions and how I often think that it's something that people just say that they do so that they can get grant money but like, what does it really mean to invest in meaningful, ongoing, reciprocal relationships with BIPOC artists and like community organizations? And like, how can institutions create investments in those, in those organizations to like lead to that long-term audience development that they want and not just like going after a targeted demographic when you're doing a show that reflects that targeted demographic? Um, so yeah, so those are my hopes and dreams <laughs> about what people can do. And I mean, you know, 
when you're working at something that I learned when I was, because, you know, I toiled away at the mid-level of an institution for a long time. And I think that there's only so much you can do at the mid-level. You can advocate as much as you want and, you know, you can lobby for change, but you're not the person making the decision. And it really comes down to leadership and they have to care. And that's it. It's just like, you can't make, you can do your best to make somebody care, but at the end of the day, I'm not the one enacting change. <laughs> um, I can advocate for it, but I can't enact it. So it's really about leaders making this a priority. You know, you don't need to have a task force on diversity, just do it. <laughs> you know, like I'm so sick of task forces and committees and all of that, like institutional red tape. If it's important to you, just do it. Yeah, don't don't leave, don't res, like assign it to the bureaucracy of the institution and and let it die in committees and things like that. I love yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really great, and I I feel like budgets are moral documents is such a great uh, like succinct way of putting it. And you know, we tend to think of uh, or I feel like a lot of um, people in positions of power would have you believe that a budget is a neutral reflection of various things, but really, you know, like where where an institution is putting its money tells you what it cares about and i think that um you know all of these things could be enacted very quickly it's not um and it's a matter of not wanting to do it you know uh the the entirety of the american sports um baseball hockey uh, the nba and the nfl figured out how to play seasons in a pandemic uh, not safely but quickly and in a way that made them the money that they wanted and if they can do that i feel like a theater can figure out how to uh, find and hire more people, more BIPOC artists mm-hmm. without, without needing a 15 person committee and an executive study and stuff like that. So um, that's, uh, that's really great. Um, Lauren, would you like to uh, tell folks where they can find you and where they can find the newsletter? Sure. Um, so the newsletter is on Substack. It's nothingforthegroup.substack.com. I think you can actually go to nothingforthegroup.org. Like I tried to get a domain name. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> but, um, but you can find it there. Um, you can read it online and you can also subscribe. Um, I have a couple of different tiers. I don't quite know what the subscription content is going to be yet, but I promise it's going to be entertaining. Um and you know, you can also find me. I am very irreverent and probably slightly annoying on Twitter. Um, I'm at Halverson on there. Um, and yeah, that's about it. I don't have a website yet, but I'm thinking about making one just so that when you know the Fast and the Furious musical is looking for a dramaturg, they know where to find me. <laughs> I love that. Yes, you'll have to get your pitbull, your your future pitbull involved. Exactly. I, I really, I really feel like maybe if I name him Dominic Toretto, then, then they'll like seriously consider me for the job. You, you have to put, you have to put on his collar somewhere about family and how important it is to him. <laughs> yeah. I also feel, I hope you, if you do that, you live tweet that because the funniest thing I've ever seen is, um, I, I, have you seen the video where Vin Diesel shows up to record his lines for Guardians of the Galaxy and he's wearing stilts so he can be in character for it? No. Like he comes <laughs> and it's clear that he does not know how to walk on stilts also, but he's so committed to being Groot. Uh, so I feel like he would be great in a stage musical version. So I think, I think that they should do Guys and Dolls and I think he should, I think he should be Nathan Detroit. He'd be great. That's what I want to say. That's what I want to yeah. say. That's that would make for a great casting. I would I would see that. Yeah. 
Excellent. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. And I feel like this has been a really useful conversation for our listeners. Of course. Thank you so much. Many thanks to Lauren Halverson for coming on this episode and talking to us a little bit about dramaturgy. That was fantastic. She was great. Absolutely. And I feel like that's a really great way for people to start thinking about dramaturgical practice, not just in the rehearsal room, but in the classroom, in uh, a theater department, generally a theater organization. Um, So a lot to think about and a lot to chew over there. Yeah, really. And and we encourage everyone to check out her writing. It is fantastic. And I think she's drawing attention to some really, really necessary things in theater and theater institutions across the country. Yeah, definitely. So, Seth, hey, guess what time it is? What are you working on? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully you're working on something. Uh, um, I am. Fortunately, I I am wrapping up the final edits on an article that's going to be coming out this fall. Um, in theater annual, so I will uh, I will circle back and let folks know about that when it comes out. Um, and I am we need also... to get sound effects. We need to get sound effects for this so that I can yeah. have like a <laughs> yeah. applause and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, like the the uh, the fans from Tecmo Bowl on the NES. I feel like <laughs> that's, what, that's what I, who I want cheering for me. Yeah, um, that's great. Yeah, uh, and then uh, I am working on and uh, revising uh, something I wrote a while ago, but. Uh, for submission to an upcoming special edition of TDR um, that is about restoration actresses and celebrities. So uh, that um, that's going to be the bulk of my focus for August. And hopefully I'll be able to get that in, uh, in some kind of working shape. So uh, putting one thing to bed, um, getting another project underway uh, and, and um, then, uh, then figuring out where my next, my next move is. And, what about you? As we as we get ready for back to school time, what have you got going on? Oh, I'm not even thinking about back to school yet. I've still got so many things I got to finish before we get there. <laughs> but but I did just submit my review, my book review for a, a really excellent book called Dramatic Justice by Jan Robert. I hope I'm saying that name right. Y a n n Jan Robert. Um, his book details theater during the revolutionary period and the French Revolution, not the American Revolution. And it was really fascinating. Um, it was interesting because it's, it deals a lot with uh, kind of the historiography of the period in terms mm. of what was going on theatrically, but it really dives into it in a in, in, in much, much deeper way uh, to kind of investigate why it is that you've got these Republican factions who have come to power in the course of the revolution and, and overthrown this, this ancient, the ancien regime of, of, of French history. And, you know, they're all about the voice of the people, but then as soon as the theater starts taking on, you know, a, a voice of its own and, and a voice of the people and, and more specifically kind of this idea of the voice of the masses, mm. why it is that certain factions tend to push back against it and what ends up happening under Robespierre with uh, heavy, heavy censorship and that kind of stuff. It, it's a much more complex uh, narrative than I think it's been presented in most histories. And, and Robert does a great job of uh, investigating that really deeply and, and talking about, you know, dramaturgical issues, which I actually really like, and it fits really well with this episode, obviously, is that, you know, dramaturgy is also, I think, a really good method of historical investigation, that we need to understand what it is that um, the, the kind of things that are influencing the architecture of a work and, mm. and how those things are being built into the work in ways that speak loudly to that time period and in those contexts but but can be overlooked very easily by 
um, our, our modern eyes today. So I, I really liked it. So <laughs> spoiler alert in the review, it's a good book. Um, and and I'll, that's going to be coming out in the next edition of Theater History Studies. Uh, so you can look for that, look for my review there. Um, and, and like you, I'm putting one project to bed, which is that one. And I am and pivoting very quickly to a chapter that I'm working on on um, the reception of li the liturgy as performance in the Middle Ages. So, uh. yeah, looking at, you know, I'm really interested in communities because as is true with most histories, we really focus on like a few key individuals or a few key mm -hmm. dates or, or events. And when it comes to the liturgy, I mean, we're talking about something that that was, uh, you know, developed and, and built and then torn down and rebuilt again. And all these things changed and switched and moved around hundreds and hundreds of times over over centuries. And it's often yes, it's often one individual who comes in swinging the hammer who knocks everything down. But the whole structure was built by communities of people, uh, people who were doing things that they felt were best practices for them and their community, and then reflecting those practices in different ways and documents. And so it's actually a really difficult method of investigation historically. Like how do we understand how the liturgy was received as a performance? Like mm. what, what was going on, particularly in a period where there's a lot of anti-theatricality. You've got lots and lots of very popular people, very powerful people saying, we shouldn't be doing theater and this theater stuff is of the devil and all of that. So it, it's, it's a really fast, it's going to be a fascinating chapter. I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing it up. Uh, I need to get it submitted pretty soon. So that is currently taking up most of my attention, but I, I you know, it, maybe next month when we, our next episode, I will have a better answer for you as to how I'm preparing for the beginning of the school year, because by then I might be right up on it. <laughs> well, I feel like you've still got some time and it sounds like this is a really interesting project. And I think that, um, maybe uh, in a future episode, we can talk about this, about the, the conflict between history as narrative and history as, you know, uh, mass experience. Because I feel like, um, I, well, that was a, a clever little play on words there, I guess, mass experience. But yeah. uh, uh, you can have that as a title <laughs> if you want. Um, that's that's going to be the book, Mass yeah. Experience. Yeah, this is the... uh, to take listeners inside the game here a little bit. When we were in grad school, uh, I once was writing a paper about Henry Irving that I wanted to title uh, Night Times the Right Time, K-N-I-G-H-T, yeah. about his knighthood. And Kyle talked me out of it. And I, I have not forgotten it. No, and I know. If I, I ever know. get that published. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> we had we had a little cohort of people that uh, in our grad school uh, group that we always tried to come up with with um, <laughs> ridiculous names for papers and projects. Uh, I do I do believe one of our colleagues uh, did capitalist uh, Captain. Cr what was it again? It was oh goodness, it was about sailors and piracy and oh yeah and depictions on the stage in, in like yeah it, it was something about Captain Europe. Crunch yeah uh, some capitalist yeah. Captain Crunch I think is yeah what it was. something like that uh, <laughs> yeah uh, but. Uh, it, Puns aside, that does sound like a really fascinating piece, and I look forward to uh, to getting a chance to read it. Well, thank you. I, I hope it. I hope. It, oh, I should mention, I did submit an article to um, a journal. I won't say what yet until until I get word back. But I did submit a, um, uh, an article on gameplay and theater and understanding theater and gameplay, mm. which and, and gameplay uh, gaming is talked a lot about in, in terms of like historical context, but, but, but very little, very little is given to this term gameplay. And, and so I've, I've kind of 
co-opted it a little bit, appropriated it from modern modern game studies, which is you know dealing with your kind of your console and your computer gaming and your mobile gaming and that kind of thing. Oh, fascinating. Um, but but I'm I'm using it in a, in a different context, in a medieval context, to say that you know drama, theater, performance is doing very much the same thing as sitting at a game board, like a chess board, or there's actually this game that I really focus on called Rhythmomachia. Sounds very fascinating, mm. but it, I have I still don't even understand how to play it after reading all these instructions <laughs> about it. It is inc- deeply mathematical. And you know every piece has a very different number. And so there's all these, and you can stack pieces and it's kind of laid out like a chess board, but, but much bigger, it's, it's really complex. Um, so I imagine a bunch of medieval monks sitting around teaching each other how to play this. And they're like, okay, what? <laughs> but, that's, but that's the point is that like in the court, like there's a very kind of martial context to it. In other words, mm-hmm. like the idea is that it's like a battlefield and superiority of numbers is what wins the game and all this kind of other stuff. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of got a mimetic quality to it. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's taking the place of thinking about, um, conflict in, in various you know ways and, and warfare and that sort of thing. So, and you know, there's this kind of, there's a lot of overlap with what's happening, what I see happening in plays and drama of the same period are, you know, the first named female playwright of European history, Hrotsvit, wrote a play, wrote actually more in, in, in several of her plays, but one of her plays in particular, Pathnutius, actually mentions all of these various um, mathematical intervals and how they work in music and how music reveals this cosmic harmony. Well, guess what this game works on? All of the same mathematical intervals, all you hmm. know, what we call the super particularis. That's what it's, or the super particular ratio hmm. and how that plays into the way that you play the game. Well, then all of a sudden you're talking about it in terms of music theory. And then you're also studying it as a part of this greater kind of Christian cosmology it all comes together in 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 these in this context of the medieval monastery, and drama is playing into that. And so, you know, this hmm. idea of gameplay stretches from playing games to theater and performance as well. So, I'm, I'm hopeful. I, I really spent a lot. I, you know, for those out there, I, you know, we won't be transparent. It took me about two years to write this article. Uh, two years of research. I just happened to stumble across a letter in an archive that sounded really fascinating. I did some more digging, and then you know, stumble, 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 stumble my way all the way into an idea. And the idea develops, you know, with more research and so on and so forth. So two years out, about three or four drafts of this article. And I think it was it was ready. And I submitted it a few weeks ago to a, to a journal that I am hopeful will pick it up and and decide to publish it. I will let you know if they do. And Excellent. When, I, when I do know, I will announce it here. Excellent. Well, we look forward to hearing more and uh, and to reading it at some point. And uh, also to figuring out how, how to play Rhythmomachia. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we should do like a YouTube episode of you and yeah. me trying to figure out how to play that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'll end with us both just drunk and throwing the board in the trash can. <laughs> yeah, it'll become a game of who's going to tip the tip the board over first. <laughs> well, Seth, thanks for making a podcast with me. And thank you very much for uh, for doing another episode. This has been great. Yeah, look forward to next month. And thank you all for joining us on the Teaching Drama Podcast. My name is Kyle A. Thomas. And I am Seth Wilson. We'll see you next month. Bye, everyone.